the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. It's the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. On this episode, I have the interview with Merrill Kellum. Merrill Kellum is a retired officer with the Atlantic City Police Department. Like most of the guests on this show, he has lived an interesting life. In addition to his career in law enforcement, he found himself as a part of Frank Sinatra's inner circle. He also worked as a part of Frank Sinatra Jr.'s organization until Frank Sinatra Jr. passed away. It's stories galore with the cordial Merrill Kellum. Help keep the Paul Leslie Hour going. Contribute any amount via PayPal. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. You'll see a button that says support the show. Click there. You can contribute any amount. If you want to watch this interview with Merrill Kellum, it also exists as a YouTube video version, an audiovisual experience. You can find it on YouTube. You can also find it there on thepaulleslie.com. And now, the interview with Merrill Kellum. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour, now in our 17th year with select episodes and video. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very interesting person with us on this broadcast. Merrill Kellum is here. He's had a very diverse life, a lot of experiences with a lot of stories. Merrill Kellum is a retired Atlantic City Police Department officer. He served in that capacity for more than three decades. Merrill Kellum is also known for working as security consultant for Frank Sinatra, the king of singers. He also worked security for singer and performer Frank Sinatra Jr. Merrill Kellum has been mentioned and featured in many newspapers and magazines through the years. It's a great honor to welcome a man with quite a history. Mr. Merrill Kellum, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Paul. Thanks for thinking of an old man like me. <laughs> it's an honor to talk to you. So how are you this day? I'm fine. Good. Fine. Thanks for asking. Lovely fall day here at the New Jersey shore. You're you're up there in New Jersey on, on the coast. Yeah. And uh, it's a place that I, I know not as well as you, but fairly well. I think most stories are best from the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up? I think you're from Philadelphia originally. I am. I am. I grew up in Philadelphia and uh, graduated South Philadelphia High School, class of 68, and uh, had an interesting life growing up. Uh, my family, my father had a deli and cafeteria on South Street, Kellum's Deli, which for 60 years that I did not want to go into. A lot of money in those corned beefs, but <laughs> you got to be there at all times. In fact, a friend of mine, Russ Cowan, he bought our competitor around the corner and he's making a damn nice living cutting those corned beefs and pastrami's, but you're always there. <laughs> <laughs> So I, um, we had a family home here at the New Jersey shore in the Atlantic City area. I got sand in my shoes, got out a little stint in the army, and um, I wound up, I took the police test. Mm 
a lot of friends of mine who I met over the years down here. And I was working for Hertz, Hertz rent a car during the day. And I had a good job with them. I learned the auto business. And at night, I would still help out in the store and I would close the store. My uncle and my father were getting elderly and the neighborhood where we were on South Street was starting to go down and then it came back. So uh, he had called the office down at PHL one day and he got a hold of our secretary, Thelma, and he said, could you have him call me? So Thelma told my father, Peter hasn't worked here in two weeks. <laughs> they didn't know I was commuting from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, which is about eh, door to door where I had to go and to our place there. Hour and 10 minutes. I had bought a brand new 73 Dodge Charger. And within the first three months, I had 10,000 miles on it almost. So he, I came home and I told him and that was it. And the rest was history. <laughs> the rest was history. I had a nice career. Met a lot of people. I met a lot of people in the deli business too. That I did, especially in that neighborhood. And uh, that you'd need a whole nother hour to talk about. <laughs> well, while we're talking about food for just a moment, there are a lot of very interesting things that you can get at a deli. I have some fond memories of my time up in New Jersey, and I'm hoping you can tell us what is your absolute favorite thing that you can get at a traditional deli? Well, the traditional is corned beef and pastrami. That is the traditional. Um, I like it. I like the mix, but unfortunately, these days, I can't hack pastrami anymore. Too spicy for me. But uh, I like the nice corned beef and Swiss on rye with a hot pepper and a Heineken beer. Or in Philadelphia, an Ortlieb's beer. I like the nice corned beef special, but I especially like a nice hand-carved brisket sandwich on seeded rye with a schmear of chicken schmaltz on one side, mustard on the other, and a Bermuda onion. That was it. Then, of course, if you want to go to the dairy end of it, kasha and varnishkas, which is the kasha and bow ties, with kishka, which is a sausage judea. It's vegetable-filled. It's like Italian sausage, but instead of the meat, it's vegetable-filled with... Uh, with uh, celery, carrots, onion, potato, and it's stuffed matzo meal. And you cook it up with mushroom gravy, with kasha and vonichkas. Mm, what a meal. <laughs> you, you speak with incredible exactitude about this. <laughs> Don't forget chicken noodle soup. I won't give my recipe. <laughs> chicken matzo ball soup. In fact, my friend Russ who has the famous 4th Street Deli in Philly. He was over the house one night. We had him for dinner. And <laughs> I made a Friday night dinner, chicken soup, the chicken and everything. And he's eating the soup. He said, where'd you get this stuff? I said, what are you talking about? I made it. <laughs> Molly said, he made that. And you know what? He said, this stuff tastes better than mine. I said, shh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, what about music? Were you a music fan early on? I was. I always liked listening to music. My father got me hooked on classical music because in the store he liked to play. In Philly, we had WFLN, which was the classical music station. And he would play that real low in the in the store during lunch because his thing was people would come in, they'd be in a rush or they might have had a rough day and this and that. And that classical music like brought them down. It calmed you. You sat, you relaxed. We had 45 seats in the store, but we had a big turnover like uh, the breakfast club. <laughs> You would, he would open up at five in the old days when they still had industry in Philly. By the time we closed down in 76, he was opening up at six. And we would close sometime. We would close at 10, 11, midnight, sometimes on Saturday night. But towards the end, by nine, during the week, by eight o'clock, we were done. done. But... Uh, the South street Renaissance came back and we started doing good again, but my father and my uncle were up in age. I didn't want the business. My sister didn't want the business. And that was it. What would you say it was that got you determined to be involved in law enforcement? I just took the test. I don't know. <laughs> just kind of happened. Took the test. All the cops used to come in our store my father had a guy, if the trolleys were messed up in Philly, when I was going to junior high school, we still had trolley cars there. And if the line was messed up, we had Pete, the cop who walked, walked the beat and he would jump in my old man's station wagon and drive us to school. So, and then he was the friendly neighborhood cop, which today would be community policing guys mm. like that. And, uh, I don't know. I just took the test and next thing you know, I'm on the I'm on the job. Hmm. Was it something you took on with passion once you started? I had fun. I could write a book with a couple other guys. Um a couple people had approached me. Um this gentleman, I won't well, with one of the big network, pay-per-view networks and this producer. Uh, we were talking to him one day about it and he said, boy, I'd love to sit down with you, but I never called them back. He's still around. He's hmm. still around. Uh, two guys. And, uh, let me tell you, if we put together a book with my guys, my buddies and all sit down, shoot the bull. We could put something out which would put Barney Miller and Car 54 were I to shame. Because <laughs> our midnight date detective bureau was Barney Miller. Our, it was actually Barney Miller. Uh, this is when the casinos first opened. I was the midnight date traffic guy, uh, accident investigation and, uh, and um, DWI. Most of my career was in traffic. Yeah. Probably so many stories. <laughs> you couldn't. Too many. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about Atlantic City? What was it like in in particular to to serve in that that part of the of the state? Oh, it was great. 
it was a great, it was great. When I first went on, everybody wanted to work a radio car. I walked the beat. That was the best job going. You kidding me? I walked the boardwalk, a lot of overtime. It was, it, 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 I met a lot of people walking the beat. It's like the community police there. I knew everybody. I knew every kid. I knew every gangster. I knew every pickpocket on my beat. And I never had a problem. Me and my partner, when we walked the beat, never had a problem. So it's, this is your best defense. And it's the same thing when I worked with uh, Mr. Sinatra, with Rickles, uh, all the Rat Pack, Sammy, whoever it was. This is your best defense. Hmm. You got to know how to talk to people. Like if somebody's screaming, ah, you son of a bitch, you talk like this in a nice, calm manner, and you bring them down. Hmm. So a lot of the job was was basically a communications job. It was. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You have to be a people person. Hmm. <laughs> you have to be a people person. And um, I don't know if they do it today, but when I I had to I had to go uh, to supervisor school run by the FBI, which was a two week course. And let me tell you something. It was excellent. The young kids today. Hey, they still call and ask me for advice, not only from Atlantic City, but surrounding areas who know me because I knew them when they were little kids and now they're cops. Hmm. Even firemen, especially when it comes to disciplinary things and everything. Or You got to know how to talk to people. So let's say for anybody who's watching or listening to this, I, I want you to tell them what you think the best thing to do in this situation would be. They're walking in the city. Maybe they're on the way to a concert venue back when we used to go to concerts or a ball game or whatever. And somebody who's seemingly out of their mind walks up to you and they kind of approach you in a, an intimidating. Uh, they're, they're scary. What do they do? You really can't answer that until you're in at the situation. You got to first thing I did, you look at a person's eyes and hands. That's mm. how you can tell. You could tell if, if they're glassy, watery, you know they're on something. Uh, a lot of times you could bring them down talking to them. And a lot of times you got to know how to make your move. And I don't want to say nothing how we make a move because you might have people listening say, uh, 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 and uh, we never give trade secrets out. Understood. Understood. So how did you come to meet the great Frank Sinatra? Started the night gambling past here in 1976. My buddy, Larry Victorson, he was known as the weasel growing up in Philadelphia. But when he was working with the entertainers in Las Vegas, they gave him the nickname Nifty. Larry and I, we were childhood friends. His father was a big shot out in Vegas. His father ran the old Thunderbird Hotel. And then his father wound up being the corporate vice president of entertainment for, for a new hotel called Caesar's Palace in 1966 
Tammy opened Caesars, by the way. He was the opening act. And um, he calls me up. And he said, yeah, you and Bobby Palmyra, or you, he didn't know his last name, you and Bobby's skinny son-in-law, skinny D'Amato, you guys have the detail, just don't say anything to anybody. Because uh, Sinatra, he liked to use people who he knew or somebody who recommended because they know he recommended somebody. It was, it was kosher. And you know, it was the Amos, the truth. So Larry calls me up. In those days, Caesar's Palace, their shows ran Tuesday through Sunday. And other houses ran Monday through Saturday. This way, every day, one of your major hotels, you had a name act going. Along with whatever... They had in the smaller rooms, like a variety show, whatever. So he puts me on the phone with Jilly. And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to Frank Sinatra. Oh, how are you? Nifty said you're our man. How's my friend, Mr. D'Amato, referring to Skinny? I said, fine, Mr. Sinatra. I was with him all night with his son-in-law the night gambling passed because Bobby and I, we were... Uh, we used to run the old PBA meetings. He was the state delegate, and I was always the convention delegate. And I was also, I think I was treasurer at the time on the executive board of our PBA local here in Atlantic City. And I talked, and then he put Nifty back on, and he said, just keep quiet. Don't say anything. Now, this is November of 76. He comes. He doesn't show up here till October 78 with that benefit for the Atlantic City Medical Center. In the meantime, I had already started with them at the Valley Forge Music Fair. I went to Radio City, I went here, and I even went out to Vegas to break in. And I met a lot of nice people along the way. His main guy was uh, in Vegas was Uncle Frank, the guy who was always with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. He was a beat cop. He was he's he was retired from New York, but he was all he was a um, hotel security at Caesars, and he was part of the Star Guard service to care of the entertainers. And um, I met Richie Ayub, who was the main guy up in New York, Dickie Boy, as he would call him, Richie. In fact, I was with Richie and his wife Adele last week. We're still in touch. So when we get together, we reminisce and all. And uh, next thing you know, Easter weekend, 1979, he opens here in Atlantic City for a run, and that was it. But I had already been working with them for almost two years hmm. before he came to Atlantic City. Took him almost uh, past in 76, and resorts didn't open until May of 78. By the time they rebuilt and with the laws and this and that. And the rest is history. So when you first started working with Frank Sinatra, was that something that would you would say, did it make you nervous? How did that feel to be around him? <laughs> yeah, you were nervous. Oh, yeah. It's like guarding the president of the United States. And um, 
Skinny D'Amato coached Bobby and me on what to do. Not only how you handle him, but a lot of, you don't talk to them. You let them talk to you first. Don't volunteer this, that. He asks you something, oh, yeah, sure, and this and that. But you let them talk to you. Let them feel you out. You're the employee. You're the guy. And by, by the end of the weekend, we were part of the family. Hmm. Bobby and I. Yeah. Yeah, we were. So what would you say the job mainly entailed? What were you mostly doing? Well, it was basically the security of the show. We would look after him. Uh, We would screen the people coming backstage with the meet and greet from the casino and everything, we had to turn some people down. We had to, you know, some people might've been affiliated and all. Mm, Well, that's a tough question, but it would be basically the same thing as if I'm going to work on the street. Yeah. The main thing is you had to constantly with your eyes looking up, down sideways, and you had to have eyes in back of your head because Everybody wanted a piece of him. And especially what we used to do, we still had the hotel security with us. They would guard the perimeters, the doors and everything. And our thing was, especially when I used to run all the prize fights, when I ran the casino unit, the uniform end of the casino unit, with all the prize fights, you'll find out everybody could have been in the room for five minutes with Frank Sinatra. Oh, he knows me. Oh, where were you? Oh, I met him here. Well, where's here? I met him at Patsy's. Where? Upstairs or downstairs? You know, uh, I think it was upstairs. Where was his table? Uh, Right by the steps. Right there and then you had him. Because he always used to sit in the back at Patsy's or um, Rocky Lee's which was his favorite hangout after the show was at 52nd and 2nd, then he Panetta's joint. And uh, he would go there for pizza, whatever, at the end and relax after a show. And uh, people would say, uh, I would always say, well, who's the mater d' at Rocky Lee's when you'd get stopped, when you'd walk in? Uh, I don't know. He said it was some black man. I said, okay, what was his name? Oh, I don't know. Well, it was Smitty. His real name was Sherman Jones. What a character. And uh, it was Smitty. But they didn't know. If they didn't know, bingo. If they, if they knew him, they would have known Smitty, and Smitty would have let him in the back or upstairs, wherever we were. So you had to know. You had to know how to talk to people. Yeah, you, you had to know. You had to know. Well, let's put it this way. You had to be nice to tell them to get lost. So you don't make it feel bad. Hmm. So how would you describe Frank Sinatra? Pain in the ass. <laughs> First than my father. He yeah. treated us. He treated me and Bobby like we were like we were family. If I had a girl, what are you doing with her? She's not good for you. <laughs> you know, or what are you doing? Boom, but boom. Then I went to a quack doctor. Oh, God, this is 1986. There was a quack. He used to be the house doctor at the uh, Latin Casino. 
one of the house doctors. And uh, he always loved to rub elbows with the stars, play tennis and all with, with, the, uh, with the people behind the scenes and do this, do that. A real bullshit artist. Am I allowed to say that? Or am I going to get blipped? We'll let it slide. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, this guy, he decides he's going to open up his own. He was ahead of his time. He's going to open up his own medical center down here at the Jersey Shore. Used to be Cousin Chuck's used car lot where it was. One of the towns. I don't want to mention the town. I don't want to mention the name. I don't want lawsuits, if you know what I mean, even though it's almost 40 years ago, 35 years ago. So <laughs> he started, he got everybody to go. This was back in 1980. We're still in resorts. So it is 40 years ago. And we all went. I went once. I went twice. I never went back. My partner, Bobby, says, oh, where to go with me? I said, you go. He's full of crap, this guy. So 1986 rolls around. I got a little plump. And uh, I was 36 years old. And we decide we're going to go to his uh, this guy's. Always used to come to the show. Always knew how to get backstage. Always got this guy. Always got friendly with the entertainment directors or the managers, the major D's. He knew how to weasel his way back. Bullshit artist. I go this last time. The last time I went, I know heart disease runs on my mother's side. My father's side is diabetes. My mother's side's high blood pressure and heart. And we go there. And the first thing he gives us is this test and I'm looking, we're walking through. Well, anyhow, I'll make a long story short. By the time it was over, this guy was full of crap and we go for the consultation. Go for the consultation. Now it's a day before I'm going to Acapulco for 17 days. Oh, I wouldn't go to you go there. He's telling me I got to go here. I got to go there. The hospital he wanted to send me to, they lay six to five on the visitors that they don't come out of there alive. So <laughs> I go to Acapulco. They put a scare in me. I come back. We had to come back early. Dottie calls us in Acapulco. Oh, Mr. S is coming in. You guys got to go with him here and we got to do this. And he's doing a weekend. He was filming the first Deadly Sin at the time. Oh, no, 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 no. I, that's another story. I'm sorry. I jumped. I jumped six years. But anyhow, we come back to this. He had owed Steve Wynn a date. That's what it was. From when he, um, he, he boycotted New Jersey with that famous Dean Martin with the famous card game where they handled the cards in Atlantic City. I got that mixed up. So anyhow, we had to come home early. We had to go make a few runs with him. We come back, and we wind up going to eat. Steve Wynn was just opening up an Italian room at the Gold Nugget here in Atlantic City. Didn't have 
pasta joint. Always had a beef house, French house, and a Chinese restaurant. But didn't have an Italian restaurant. What casino doesn't have an Italian restaurant? So it was a big dedication, and he came in for that. All right. We're all sitting around. This is about 11.30 at night. And he starts ordering the antipasta. He's ordering this. He's ordering that. They're bringing out the calamad, the squangili, you name it. And oh, my mouth is watering. <laughs> I mean, my mouth, I'm drooling. And I'm eating celery, carrots, and olives like this. Uh. <laughs> so he said, oh, what's with you? I'm not hungry. What do you mean you're not hungry? I'm not hungry. So he's looking at me for Christ's sake like that. Now, when he said for Christ's sake, it all depends how he said it. It was either everything. It was funny or what's wrong. He had to know. So I'm there. So make a long story short. Bobby said, Mr. S. Merrill's got heart disease. Mm. Oh, yeah. We'll take care of that. Start eating. <laughs> So he said, start eating. I'll start eating. I start eating. The next morning, I get a call. He's yelling down the hall in the hotel. I go in, tells me, get Dottie on the phone. In the office, I get Dottie. He makes a phone call. Excuse me. Dr. DeBakey. The end of the show, he takes me down to DeBakey. DeBakey. Does a, I'm there for four days in Houston. He drops me off in Houston on his way home to Palm Springs. I start telling him, I told him what this doctor did and what he was and the test he gave. Get me the president of the AMA. Get me the president of the Osteopathic Association. Get me this. Get me that. This is Dr. Baker. Now, I'm still on a gurney because in those days when they catheterized you, you had to be flat. Mm. So, and the old man's on the other line, and they, well, make a long story short, this doctor up here, he got reamed a new one because it was an unauthorized test. He decides he's going to get away with it, and he comes to see him six weeks later at the Gold Nugget. Frankie Randall's the entertainment director, and he said, oh, I'm going to bring Dr. So-and-so and his friend and their wives they want to take a picture with Mr. S. I said, Frankie, you're going to bring it. Oh, Merle, please don't say anything. Oh, I won't say nothing, Frank. So <laughs> we bring him back at the end of the show. And I said, Mr. S, that's the doctor. Oh, he said, like this. He's real nice. He tells Bobby, tell, take the ladies wherever they're going. Walk him out of the hallway. Well, we shut the door and did he ream him a new one? What kind of a doctor are you? You almost killed my boy here. Well, this guy was like this. I mean, he was mm. shaking. I had to throw him a roll of toilet paper. That's how bad it was. We needed Glade in the room after he died. So <laughs> he looked after me like a son. Mm. And a few other things and everything. Uh, a lot of funny stories. I'll tell you that if I see him in person, Johnny knows, but that, that's one of them. But he used to look after me if I would eat. 
Then four years later, we do the 75th birthday. And we're at the Meadowlands, and I put a little bit of weight on. And he said, nice suit. I said, oh, you like it? <laughs> I'm like this. And you could see those blue eyes were looking at you like daggers. And I had to go. I had to, Bobby said, walk out. Come on. And we gave him a horse that night. A friend of ours gave us a horse next door in the Meadowland, a, a, a trotter. And this horse paid like 34 to one. <laughs> but he was pissed at me. And we went over to New York for the birthday party. And then next morning, go back here, come back here. And three weeks later, we're in Las Vegas. We're doing New Year's at the Longhorn Riviera. It was a great show upstairs, downstairs, this, that. Pia Zadora was involved, Tom Dreesen, Joey Villa, and that was it. And uh, we would do the downstairs, go upstairs. I mean, we were running that night. Next morning, New Year's Day, we're, go we're heading home. Now, I'm in the airport. Remember the way OJ used to run for the airplane? <laughs> I ran, all of a sudden, I went to, like this. I get back to Philly, and I'm dragging my ass. I call my doctor here up in Philadelphia, and my doc says, do you still have that connection in Houston? I said, I do. I go down to Houston. I had three angioplasties done. Mm. And I never called... I never called Mr. Sinatra. I'm in my room and I'm like this. I'm half shot. What the fuck's wrong with you? And he's screaming and yelling. and Oh, my God. And at the end, your mother and father, okay? Do you need them? I'll send them down. I'll send a plane for them, whatever. I said, nah, they're fine. I went on my own this time because the last time when I went in 86 for all those tests, I took a turn for the nurse and uh, Bobby, we, we had fun even afterwards. You get that? I took a turn for the nurse. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. That was a two cent joke. <laughs> so we, uh, I, I behaved myself after that. I really did. Until four years later, and I, well, whatever. But he looked after me every time my mother and father would go see the show. He'd sit and talk with my father, Chicky, you know. He would talk about Frankie, and my father talked about me. And Frankie and I were alike in some ways. And uh, he would, they would just sit and talk and everything. And eh, like I said, we were, we were part of the family. We were like family then. Would you say that you could name perhaps a Sinatra song that means the most to you personally? I liked all those tunes, every tune. Jeez, um, that's a tough question. They all have a meaning. Right. And you always know where you were. You always knew what you were doing. And... Uh, Jeez, I, I, 
my favorites, I always, my, my, my favorite ballad was uh, Hang My Tears Out to Dry. He would say, he would always say that one for my baby, that was the granddaddy <laughs> of the saloon songs. But Hang My Tears Out to Dry, that was the one that made you drink. If you ever listen to the, you know, friends ask me out, I tell them I'm busy. I got to find a new alibi, you know, and that will, he said, that will be, that's the one that drives you to drink. But, uh, the ballads, uh, Moonlight in Vermont is one of my favorites. I would say, uh, one of my favorites is old McDonald, how he does it. Hmm. And um, I've got a I've got a singer, I'm a young singer out of Philadelphia, a kid by the name of Brandon Tomasello. Um, he got the chart to Old McDonald, and he jumps that tune. So, how did you come to meet Frank Sinatra Jr.? He came. He was working Atlantic City with George Burns, and. Mr. S invited them for dinner at resorts and Frankie came up and he loved cops. So me and Bobby, he sat with us and George Burns. Oh, what a great guy he was. And, um, that's how we got friendly. That was 40 years ago. He was a very interesting person. He could write songs. He could sing. He could conduct. He was an incredible speaker with such an infectious speaking voice. I mean, you could go on and on. What he would should you have been a politician. You think so? He was asked to be on the police commission in Los Angeles, and he turned it down. He said, I can't in my position. He said, I have friends. I have friends on the department. My father's friends, family's friends. He said, "No." He said, "Thanks for asking, but that was it. At least that's what he told us." Loves cops and firemen. Hmm. I could imagine that, considering the history and everything. What would you say Frank Sinatra Jr.'s greatest talent was? Oh God. Whew. Great musician, and he could conduct. When his father was getting older, he revamped all the charts to his father's pace, the timing and all. And it, 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 all, it all still sounded great. Um, good musician, but great arranger, great musician. He, he was good. Frankie was good. He was good. I miss him. Would you say he was too humble? No. No, I don't think so. No? He he had he used to come up to me at the end of the show and he'd come up to Johnny, maybe Johnny told you. And he would look at us right before or right after the show, the downbeat, and he'd look at me and he'd say, Sergeant. I can't believe I got to make a living doing my father's show. I said, well, for Christ's sake, give me it. I wish I could do my father's show like that. What's wrong with you? And he <laughs> gave me the, <laughs> I went out and did the show. That's all. He had to give me a giddy up. 
Interesting. But, yeah, I wish I could do my father's show like that. You kidding? <laughs> what was it like traveling with Frank Sinatra Jr. and the band? Not like traveling with his father. No? No. <laughs> I've uh, I had flown with his father on the private jet a few times. And um, whenever we went, I, whenever I went on the road with them, everything was first class. With Junior was Greyhound buses or driving. <laughs> so he liked it that way. We 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 did uh, we did fly, but it was Greyhound buses. Hmm. Now you were mentioning off the air that you two would talk on the phone a lot. Yeah, just every about, night. Every night. Every night. I was one K eighty, and he was eight L fifty. There there are codes in the LAPD. If you're a Dragnet fan, one K eighty was Jack Webb's call. On the radio, 1K80 at headquarters. 1K80 was, uh, Junior gave me the whole rundown. One is uh, Central Division. K is Detective. 80 was his number as a sergeant. And uh, he was 8L50, which was one of the districts, Wilshire, whatever it was. L is a lieutenant, and 50 was his designation, was his number. 8L50, and I was 1K80. <laughs> they would always sign off KMA384. Like they did on Dragnet or Adam 12. Well, they were very good friends with Jack Webb. Hmm. The, the Sinatra's both his father and Frankie. And in fact, Frankie and Tina, they did quite a few Adam 12s. And there's a, they were supposed to do a spinoff. Or, uh, after Adam 12 was uh, retired back in 75 or 76, it was uh, a half-hour series where they were DAs, Los Angeles County DAs. And um, the pilot went off great, but none of the networks wanted it. Times were changing. Hmm. It's it's in there. You could see on MeTV or Google Frank Sinatra Jr., Adam 12, where they did that, but he did quite a few Adam 12s in uniform. Interesting. So what was it like from your perspective when you would see Frank Sinatra Jr. interacting with fans? Um, he wasn't like his father. And maybe it was because of the kidnapping, which we would really never talk about. Um, he was nervous around people, even when he was the musical conductor for his father, he'd be constantly looking. If he'd see somebody in this, in the audience, he'd be pointing and we'd be looking and wave this and that. And what, in all my years, we only had one jumper and that was at the sands towards the end. And I saw this guy coming and I ran out on stage, grabbed the old man, said, come on, guy jumped on stage curtain went down we were almost at the end and uh got the guy off ladies and gentlemen the show resume he came out did the final three songs and that was it hmm. this show is not really a political one but i i really i can't resist to ask you this question 
What do you think of this movement, this phrase you keep hearing in this day and time, to defund the police? Well, some politicians will tell you that defunding of the police is shifting the money to another department. But when you shift the money to another department, what's it for? They want to put head shrinkers or they want to put psychologists in a radio car with you. That won't work. What if they get hurt? It's your ass if they get hurt. They're not trained police officers. Um, it's a political move with this defunding of the police, in my opinion, which look what's happening in Minneapolis right now. Crime is up. The people are screaming, where's the cops? You got cops retiring. You got cops quitting. And there's not enough cops to cover these districts. And crime's running rampant. That's defunding the police. I don't want to get into the political thing, but it's a certain party. They, they only know certain people at election time, my opinion. And um, it's, it's not good. It's not good. You cannot defund the police. You could cut the budget a little bit, but you can't defund them. You're talking about billions. Look at that idiot up in New York, de Blasio, what he's doing. All right. Crime's running rampant up there and cops are getting hurt. That's the sad thing. Cops are getting hurt. And the new thing now, they're even going after firefighters. Crazy. People. A firefighter was killed last week, was it? Investigating a fire, a fire inspector was killed in the line of duty by one of these idiots down there, a firefighter. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? The firefighters, they're not going to, they're going to sit there and watch the buildings burn, <laughs> which they should. But of course they'll be charged if they don't, but you're going to have to send, you're going to have to send the, uh, the national guard on calls with the cops, with the, with the firemen. Now it's not a nice situation. Yeah, it's not good. These people are getting away with murder. Hmm. When I came on the job, everybody got along with everybody. I don't care if you were black, you were white, you were Jewish, Italian, Irish. Everybody got along. Everybody. What happened? They don't get along today like we did. This this younger generation, they don't know the word no. That's the problem. Hmm. Everything was given to them on a silver platter. I can't disagree. <laughs> this isn't limited to Sinatra. This isn't limited to law enforcement. This isn't limited to the Jersey Shore or anything. I always like to give whoever my guest is, I like to give them the stage. What would you say to anybody who's watching or listening? Totally open-ended. About what? Anything, really. The, the, the world is your pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's tough times right now. Um, I don't like getting involved in politics. I have friends, Republicans. I have friends, Democrats. I have friends in this party. I have friends in that party. I love dinner parties, though. 
And I don't like getting involved with politics. Um, my father told me when you're in business, guys walk, hey, don't forget me. Hey, you got it. Don't forget me. Hey, you got it. Don't get involved. Um, but there's this one party. They've got those five women that they hate the Jews. They hate, uh, they hate themselves. They're out and out idiots. Um, we had the Democratic candidate for Congress in our district come to our retirees meeting, retired police and fire. It's the retired Atlanta County. Plus we have people, come, it's open to the state, police and fire, FOP, PBA, FMBA, um, IAFF. We meet once a month. We just started after COVID, but we're spaced out. And the Democratic candidate came and she's related to the family who uh, they're the greatest swimmers of them all from Massachusetts. She's related to them by marriage. She came and told I put her in the I put her in the corner. I said, what do you think of this Ocasio, this Momar, this one, that one? And she pulled the Jackie Gleason on us. Hamana, 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 hamana. And I said, you didn't answer the question. I'm going to treat you like a hostile witness now. It's either yes or no. Do you defend them? Are you for their policy? Were they were they hate mongers? They don't like the Jews. They don't like the Catholics. And she's Catholic, I gather. She said, uh, well, I spoke with them. I said, yes or no. Do you agree with them? And she said, no, like that. I said, now. What is your stance on Israel? Because they hate Israel. And I said, you know, Israel is our only friend in the Mideast. Now, this is before this peace thing happened a couple of weeks ago. I said, what do you feel? Do you support them? Well, I said, well's a deep subject. <laughs> I said, yes or no, do you defend Israel? Yes, that's all. And then we find what she was telling us with the with the defunding. Oh, no, I'm against that. Guess what? We found poop on her from uh, the press and clippings on a couple of her uh, political. Hello, how are you? Defund the police. Do this, do that. She lied to us. Lied. Out and out lying. How can you trust people like that? How can you trust that party? Mm. How can you trust that party? And the guy who, who, well, I don't, like I said, I don't want to get involved with politics. Like I said, I have friends, Republicans, friends, Democrats, politics. When you go into that booth, they don't know who you're voting for. Unfortunately, this year, it's going to be real screwed up. <laughs> Everything's on paper and uh, whatnot, and it'll take about three weeks to know yeah. who, who who wins this race. But now nah, I never like getting involved in politics. You know why? why yeah, you might need a favor one day. <laughs> That's very true. 
<laughs> and, you know, um, especially when I was on the police department, and even now, I'm the state delegate for the retirees for Atlanta County. And uh, we had a little, with the politics and all, this guy Murphy, he def- he really wants to defund, and he made this place a sanctuary state. He's taken money away from us. But one thing he did say, he is funding the pension system. He is funding, which is good. And I tip my hat to Governor Murphy for funding the pension system. We're good for, I don't know how long, but let's hope forever. But it was two former governors that raided our pension system. And the one guy who we referred to as Fat Bastard, he said, sue me. Hmm. It'll take you five years. Well, guess what? The Retired State Police Association, who's in with us, they started their the lawsuit all right. <laughs> they raided the pension system, which they're not allowed to do. He did, and Christy Whitman, they raided the pension system. They took a lot of money out of it. And uh, Christy, he took X amount of dollars out to save the Revel Hotel. I guess that's about four or five years ago already. And what happened was it's like 300 plus million dollars out of our pension system. And that money in three weeks, the Revel closed. They closed the doors. It's now the Ocean Hotel. Hmm. Yeah. Sue me, he said. But he was out. He was a lame duck. Yeah. But we're going after him. Couldn't do it. Whitman, at least she she compensated us where she made the retirees benefits package a lot better, which it, it's still not the money, but a lot of guys who went out in the old in the older days, it was less money out of their pocket. Mm. What do you th- what would you say is the best thing about being Merrill Killam? I had a front row seat. <laughs> I had a front row seat my whole career. Yeah, met a lot of people. Still friendly with a lot of people. I've, I've been knocked around a little bit too, but anybody in life that says they've never been knocked around run away from them. They're crazy. <laughs> Everybody's had their ups and downs. Very true. I've been up and down and over and out. And I know one thing. (laughs) (laughs) At the beginning of the interview, I put all of these labels on you, you know, that you had worked in security for Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra Jr., that you were a police officer. How would you define Merrill Kellum? Who is Merrill Kellum at heart? Geez, you know, that's a tough one. I don't know. A good guy. Everybody says I'm a good guy. I try to help everybody. I try to help everybody, even today. Even today, I'm out there to help you. If I can help you with something, give me a call. I'll try and get the 411 for you. Well, sir, thank you very much for doing this interview. It's been an honor to speak to you. Oh, thank you, Paul. Very good. We should. I'd like to do this again, tell you some more stories. Absolutely. I like to say until next time. 
until next time, you know, uh, we basically answered all the, uh, anybody who's listening and watching. Hi, everybody. I'm here. <laughs> all right. Keep in touch, especially, you know, the old Sinatra gang and everything. I do talk with Sid Mark at least uh, once a month, every other, every other week. He's doing fine. That's he's good. Doing, yeah. He's still doing fine. So, yeah, but anybody wants to know, he's still syndicated in um, how many cities? I think 111. He's on 111 radio stations. I talk to Chuck Renata quite often. Chuck and I, like I told you, I had this singer, Brandon Tomasello, out of Philadelphia. Watch the name. The kid's very good. And uh, I have a Wednesday night crew. We go to dinner in Philadelphia, but with this COVID, I think we're going to, the numbers are up too high. And one of them is Bobby Rydell. And I brought Brandon to dinner one night and he and Bobby talked and Bobby gave him a lot of pointers. Ah, A lot of pointers. This kid's going to be good. He's good. Say He's the name good. one more time for the, the people out there. Brandon Tomasello okay. and also Benny Marcella out of philly benny's a little older it's a it's a hobby for benny and benny and brandon they work together okay they work together yeah very good but brandon just put an album out in fact uh, benny had a uh, record out record my my age and myself he had a song out was on they would they would play it on seriously sinatra oh and in in the chart that he was uh, with contemporary music, the standards, it was like number four for a month on the ratings. Okay. They still rate that stuff, which I did not know. Hmm. Well, I always like to keep the, the singers who are, are recording and performing this music out there, so I appreciate that. And, sir, thank you again. And thank you. And hello, everybody. And I'm here. Lost a few feathers up top and all, but a little older. But uh, I guess you've seen the pictures and all of uh, the old days you've seen on my Facebook, and Johnny has them. Johnny's got all kind of pictures. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's Johnny Pizza, folks. Johnny Pizza. That's right. Hoboken Cafe in Marietta, Georgia, the right. number one restaurant rated by USA Today in the state of Georgia. Very, very impressive. Yes. And, and it's only a lunch spot. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's it's the kind of lunch spot that you eat lunch there and you're satisfied for the rest of the day. So well, you go back for more. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I took that as a compliment, by the way. So. All right. Is that it? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Goodbye.